You're listening to Igniting Imagination, a podcast to spark the spirit within you from Wesleyan Impact Partners. This season, we are igniting the imagination of leaders through conversations with the four recipients of the 2023 Locke Innovative Leader Award. These spiritual entrepreneurs exemplify the award's aim to honor innovative leaders who have taken risks to bring about a better world where more people know God's love. Visit our new YouTube channel to watch and comment on the video. For more information, go to wesleyanimpactpartners.org. So this season, we are spotlighting our 2023 Class of Lock Innovative Leader Award recipients. All four of these remarkable leaders have taken risks to make their God-sized dreams a reality. And that is certainly true with today's guest, Alicia Gordon. But before we get to our conversation with Alicia, since this is our last episode this season, I thought we might share some of the overall themes that we're seeing from this year's class of lock leaders. Owen, what is a theme or a thread that runs through these conversations that you want to pull on? This whole series has been so fascinating. Uh, Each guest has been uh, so distinct, uh, but like one thing I really appreciate about each one of them is the insight we get into each person, not just their work, but their, you know, who they are and a bit of their story. And, and as we're focusing on their innovation, it seems like they're in each one of them, there's this, this kind of where their personal story aligned with this problem that, that God has presented before them to solve. And, and as they and they approach it from, well, we got to do something. We we have to do something with this. We have to we have to figure this out. And and at that point is the birth of of innovation. As well, we have to figure this out, and then they start working towards it. And and I've really uh, just kind of appreciated that insight to their story and how it's aligned to to something that they're seeking to to help with and. And innovation gets born there. Yeah. And there's something I, I, I want to say about the way that God has knit them together, if you will, that that puts in them a drive that mm-hmm. says, this is mine to do. In mm-hmm. other words, they're, they they take that faithful next step. They, they don't just see the problem and identify it and wish somebody would do something about it. There's kind of an almost like a... a a serial entrepreneurship, if you will, where they're they are uh, living out of this sense that God has called them to this moment and this place, and and, and that that just seems consistent. Yes, yeah. and, and and all of them, you know, uh, have all these other opportunities of what they could yeah. of what they could be doing, right? And yep. that could result in in far more income than they're currently making. <laughs> uh, but they say no. This is this is what God's yeah. called me to do, and there's this 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 commitment to it that is just admirable. It's inspiration and makes makes one want to be a part of their work. And I mean, they're living into this. Well, they're living out of their deep faith, and it yes. shows in everything they're doing. It's it's really powerful. So that leads us right into our conversation with Alicia Gordon. Um, let me first give her bio. Alicia Gordon is an awarded teacher, faith leader, and social strategist whose work intersects social advocacy and culture. She's the founder and executive director of The Current Project, a nonprofit organization committed to closing the social and economic gaps for black and brown single mothers. 
utilizing the intersection of strategic programming and policy to lengthen the runway for thriving. Prior to the current project, she served with United Methodist Women, now known as United Women in Faith, and as Executive Minister of Programs at the historic Riverside Church in the city of New York, where she led innovative strategic programming. She's also brought a lens of moral and social advocacy to her work as the Director for Faith-Based Initiatives for national and citywide political campaigns. You'll hear her talk about that. Alicia was awarded Emory University's Distinguished Top 40 Under 40 in 2019 and is a member of the alumni board of Candler School of Theology. Owen, what stood out to you from our conversation with Alicia? I want the listeners to get ready for a rich conversation. I, I felt like I just got out of school. I learned about mm. economics. Or church. I learned about <laughs> politics and I learned about theology. Uh, yeah. It is a rich conversation with great wisdom, um, you know, information and wisdom that came from mm. Alicia. And um, that really stood out. Yeah. Let's listen to our conversation with Alicia. Alicia, it is so good to be with you. Thank you. Of course, of course. I'm glad to be here today. So I want to jump right in and um, and invite you to share us a bit of the journey that led you to starting the current project. You know, the journey is a long one, and I know we're here on a, a podcast, but I think <laughs> I, can pick, <laughs> I can pick it up. Um, in 2020, I had been in some career transitions out of the traditional church um, mm -hmm. into politics. And then by the time the pandemic started in March of 2020, I think all of us were in this place of like, what in the world is happening? And discerning what we were doing with our day-to-day -day lives. Um, but I think for a lot of us, that moment in the pandemic opened up an opportunity for us to innovate, right? Mm -hmm. Because one, we didn't have anything else to do. <laughs> and two, um, because I think that was the moment where if we if you didn't already know about the kind of gaps that were existing for people in the world, um, the pandemic was the place that really opened that up for folks. And so um, there was a colleague of mine who was actually now the, the board chair of the current project who was looking to uh, just provide some programming for black and brown single moms in East Harlem, a part of a charter school system over there. And I wrote this eight month uh, kind of cohort where we were bringing economic wellness and mental health wellness and kind of community building on this virtual setting. And it went really well. And after that eight months, I said, I think we have something here. I think that there's something that mm -hmm. not only that we're responding to in this community, uh, but really tapping back into my days in seminary and deeply in the church where I saw that there was this really deep theological need for Black single mothers in particular to have this kind of space to share and to close these kind of economic and social gaps. And so that's where we all began in the middle of a pandemic where all of us were kind of like innovating around what in the world is happening. And I think this kind of uptick we're seeing in social entrepreneurship began in a very key moment during that time. That's awesome. I'd, I'd love to, to follow up on two tracks. Um, one is kind of the bigger meta picture of this, but also then the other, the more granular. So I'd love to know, as you think about this moment that came together in 2020, what are the things in your life and your theology, maybe your journey that you feel like came together in that mm. moment that, that led to that moment? 
You know, there were some, that's a really great question because one of the things that I had long been discerning, I finished um, seminary in 2015, moved to New York in 2016 to work for the women's division of the Methodist church. And one of the things that I have always been wrestling with, I felt like I had all of these parallel tracks of interest. There was the theology and preaching and teaching. There was the social justice and advocacy. There was obviously the kind of lived experience of being a black single mom and being deeply concerned mm -hmm. about those needs. And by the time 2020 came around, I had been in New York for four years and I had went from the sacred to the secular yeah. <laughs> in a very, uh, uh, in four years from the church to um, you know, managing the faith part of the campaign for one of the, for the highest office in our country. And those parallel tracks really collided when I began discerning whether or not uh, running this nonprofit was the thing to do because it brought together this kind of theological longing around how do we get the church and community to wrestle with this very common um, demographic in most urban churches, black and brown single moms, and how do we really get beyond the kind of programmatic piece? I think so much of our theological and social interests is uh, wants to program for this group. And I think that's important. Programming is key because the program is often the bridge that meets the needs when policy fails us. But what being in these political offices, both for the president and for a, a woman who was running for mayor of New York City in 2021, was that I was like, oh, policy, right? <laughs> policy is actually the thing that gets people from the program in which they're doing well back into a society that can actually sustain the thriving. And so it was like where God was just kind of like, see, it never makes sense until it yeah. makes sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And all of that comes comes together in, in that moment. And um, so now I want to get super granular and say, okay, so you have this idea and and there's this moment of innovation in 2020. What were like key moments that ha that helped you to say, "Ooh, this is mine to do." And what mm. were a couple of those first steps that you took? Key moments, you know. As I think back on it, the invitation to write the program for those moms in East Harlem. I think my initial response was to create something that I thought that I needed when I was mm. raising, you know, my, you know, when my daughter sure. was younger. And I think that's often our natural inclination is like, just give the people what you needed. <laughs> but the approach that we actually took was that we collected data we interviewed, like we uh, did a survey for like 230 moms that are part of that charter school system, asking them basic demographic information, but also asking them like, if money was no object and you had time and time was no object, where and what areas would you be spending your time learning about money, learning about community, learning about, you know, emotional wellness, all these types of different things. And overwhelmingly, they said, we want to learn about how to take the money that we have and use it in a different way, a better way. We want to have access to emotional and mental support. And we want to have access to friends and people who have shared identities with us, right? Um, and so that was the first thing is thinking about like stepping outside of what was comfortable to me, which is like, oh, I just designed something that I think moms want. No. <laughs> <laughs> We're actually going to put into practice going and, uh, and asking people what it is they want to use in that survey information. But I think the other thing was 
this moment as we were coming out of that first wave of the pandemic and my daughter is preparing to start applying for college, I kind of felt this deep sense of all roads had led to that moment, mm-hmm. right? I was a, I am a single mom and my daughter was in 11th or 12th grade. I was discerning like, okay, who am I when I'm no longer parenting her on the day to day? What is it that I'm giving my time to? How am I spending my energy? And I said to myself, and the kind of promise I made to God, I said, when I am done with the second campaign, if you will allow me, I will spend every time and resource that Mm -hmm. I have Mm -hmm. focusing on this just to see if it works. Just to see if it works. There was no, like, it wasn't even the current project at that time. It was just like, there are a couple of people who believe in this wild idea that if we resource black single moms that we can change the world and god had kind of put me in a place thanks to the pandemic to have saved a lot of money because we weren't going anywhere so, <laughs> so i spent a lot all my time and my savings literally testing out the idea and when i saw that there was some real meat on um the idea we just took it and ran with it and so i mean that's the risk the risk and the reward thank god you know i wasn't out here destitute. <laughs> it worked. <laughs> I, I, I'm very interested about this 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 survey that you did. You you you've said that uh, black single moms are very innovative. You're on this podcast because you've been recognized as a as an innovative leader. And you know when I when I think of innovation, I I think okay somebody's doing something that hasn't been done before or doing something in a way that hasn't been done before. In 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 your conversations in these surveys, what is what is something that 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 rose up that you weren't expecting? What surprised mm. you and, and what what did you find so innovative in these conversations with these women that you that you describe as uh, innovative? And, and so speak a little bit more about that process and then what what came out of those deep conversations? Yeah, you know, both the surveys and the subsequent cohort we ran as a result of those surveys, the most the thing was not surprising but affirmed was that this particular group of mothers really had everything it took to thrive. Mm-hmm. They had they were clear about their dreams, they were clear about their goals, they were clear about the lives they wanted to create for their children and their families. They were crystal clear. And the thing that was most evident to me that the only thing that was missing was access to resources, mm-hmm. money, and the right people. That mm. was it. Mm. Right. And so, and I, and I think that it's important to name because the conversation around single motherhood and black single motherhood and all these, they, they're very charged words, depending mm. on where you are, your theological beliefs, your social beliefs. Well, one of the things that was most clear to me is that these were not mothers who were living in a place of like, lack in the sense of lack of innovation, lack of idea, lack of desire. That was not it. The only thing that was missing was that they needed someone to believe, someone to resource, and someone to get out of their way Mm. (laughs) and and give them the tools that they needed to run with it because it was more than obvious to me that, um, and even tapping into my own like biases about who these people are. And that's why the survey was so clear, so important. Is because to not bring, even though, even though I'm a member of the community, to not bring my own imposed biases, right? So we needed to ask them, like, what is it that you want? And everything that they said that they wanted, they already had internally. It was really just a matter of 
putting them in a place where we could actually resource mm. uh, the dreams that they had. And that's what we were able to do. I, I um, That feels really important that what you've just said, like, even though you could identify yourself as part of the community, you didn't impose your own thoughts and experiences. You started with listening, with empathy, with conversation, yeah. with, yeah. Um, so I think about human-centered design, which literally yeah. places the human at the center. <laughs> and, mm-hmm, and, uh, mm-hmm. and, I, and it feels really important also that you didn't start at their place of lack or need. You started yeah. at the place of their dreams, their imagination. Yeah. And, uh, that just feels so um, so important to lift up as we think about as we think about the work of of helping individuals and communities flourish. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I mean, I am of the strong belief that as we work and live and play in the margins, that marginalized people know better than anyone what it is that they need. They don't need anybody to tell them that. Yeah. What we are equipped to do with our money and our platform and our resources is to put to invest in the dreaming self, in the imaginative self, right? We think about all of the kind of art and culture and ideas that have come out of the most marginalized of places, mm. right? And it's not a, it's not always just a matter of lack with like to throw money at it, but it's really about how do we give people the opportunity to dream and how can they dream safely? How can they live in a community where they can live out their dreams without worrying about it getting snatched from them, from violence, mm. from bad policies, from all those types of different things. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so important. There's a there's something that you said earlier that I don't want to gloss over. I want to go back to, and that is your own financial sacrifices that you made to help this happen. So we know that innovators, spiritual entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs of all all kinds, but spiritual entrepreneurs um, make sacrifices. When you choose that path over maybe a path that has a safety net. Um, you, you intentionally take some risks and that's been very much part of your story. And if you're mm. willing, I would love to hear more about that part of your own journey. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm super transparent about um, money and spending and how I did this because mm-hmm. nobody wins when we try to be esoteric about these things. Mm-hmm. But I remember when I moved to New York City, I just graduated from Emory a year prior and, you know, I was making like $20,000 as a research assistant, graduate school, whatever. And then I moved to New York and I'm now like making $80,000 and I'm like, man, my tie checks are going to be fantastic, right? <laughs> And so I moved to New York. Right. I moved to New York City. I'm making $80,000, most money I've ever made. Uh, My daughter's 11 years old. And prior to that point, uh, we had always depended on like welfare and Medicaid Mm -hmm. and food stamps and all those types of different things to like get by. But what was (laughs) very shocking to me and to the system and to like even my public narrative was that $80,000 was really like 40 by the time I paid rent, by the time I paid health insurance, by the time I paid for food, because now we no longer, we out earned uh, Mm -hmm. the social safety net Mm -hmm. of being able to get things like SNAP. And so that was really the place in which I came into this kind of like almost disorienting, like what does it mean to be on paper thriving, Mm -hmm. but really in reality in this place of like lack, right? Mm -hmm. And so when the pandemic happened, and I had just gotten off the presidential campaign. I had just left working for one of the largest churches here in the city. Um, I had saved 
a lot of money. And the pandemic allowed me to save a lot of money, literally just because I wasn't going anywhere, not because I'm some great steward over my money. I shop on Amazon <laughs> way too much, okay? <laughs> uh, but like, tell the truth. But when I made, when I really felt like after I did the cohort and I really made the decision that the next thing for me to do was save all this money and when I made the kind of spiritual and, and emotional and, and mental decision to really focus on what this could be, I just said that I would just use what I had. So I would use that money I saved to carry me and my daughter for an entire year to pay my rent, to put a little money in her 529 because she was going out to college in a year. Um, but it also still trying to find some semblance of like balance, taking my daughter on a vacation. She turned 16 during the pandemic. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? And so I would spend literally every dime I had until summer of uh, 2021. And well, actually, actually after the summer of 2021, just funding myself. I said, if I can just keep myself alive mm. <laughs> and keep a roof over our head um, and trust God to do the rest, we'll see what happens. And that's exactly what it is. But I think that's a part of the narrative, right? Is that when you really deeply believe that God has called you a particular type of work that I say all the time, jokingly, but I really do mean it, that it's not just my name on the line, it's God's name on the line, mm. right? You told me to do this. You give me the the the, the vision for it. And it's, it is your, our, our relationship, our bargain is if I'm willing to do it, scared and afraid, the least you can do is make sure that I'm taken care of. So that's that. Uh, mm. Usually when I encounter this level of commitment, it, it's because it comes from someplace real deep and and i and i i've heard you speak about the the theology of shame in such a powerful way um would you mind sharing a bit about that yeah you know i grew up in the church good old missionary baptist church in decatur georgia mm. where women don't preach wear pants or lipstick you know <laughs> and there's this theology of um there is a, just a deep theology of shame and lack of shame around the human condition, mm. right? That we're so heavenly bound, right? That everything that we do is about getting to heaven, being in righteous in that way, uh, that we forget that the scripture actually calls for heaven to come to earth, mm. right? And that we should be living in a way that we feel and experience heaven on earth. And I remember like just being ashamed that I was pregnant. I was a, I graduated from the number one HBCU in the country. Um, I had dreams of going to journalism school. And as my friends were all traveling to Italy and going to graduate school and going to medical school, I was at home taking care of a baby mm. and working at Sam's club and, you know, and, 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 and writing, trying to do freelance, trying to do whatever I could to make ends meet. And so that came with a lot of shame, a lot of social shame, a lot of, emotional shame and a lot of church shame mm -hmm. and coming into in and out of different churches during those early years of hearing this preaching and theology that I was sinful, that my decisions were sinful, that the baby on my hip was the result mm -hmm. of that sin. Mm -hmm. It kind of sends you into this kind of like place of completely antithetical to what scripture actually tells us about who we are and who we have the capacity to be. And so that is kind of the underpinning and the kind of unsaid part of the current project's work is that I reckon because of those deeply shameful, their shame imposed on me. Mm. Let's be clear. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right. That I know that these are the things that mothers are wrestling with, yeah. especially if you come from any kind of faith community. Mm-hmm. And that shame is often the thing that gets in the way of our emotional thriving. I think that a lot of us know what to do. We've heard what to do. We know the kind of things we need to do to get ourselves out of the muck and mire. But what you're dealing with, when everything around you is telling you that you are inadequate Mm. because you made the choice to have a baby and whether that was a result of divorce, right? And that's the thing. That's another part of the shame narrative that gets imposed on uh, on single mothers in particular is that there's this danger of the single narrative that you made a bad decision. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't account for the mothers who are in abusive relationships and get out, whose spouses die, whose partners, you know, get ill or injured and end up losing their lives or go off to war. It doesn't account for any of those things, right? It's because we have this kind of shameful theology around women, their bodies, and their choices. Hmm. Um, And I know that those are some of the things a lot of times that moms are wrestling with. And so in in another world, this is like a... (laughs) If this was like a, a a church or a theology, you know, that's really the core of what we are often unsa- in the unsaid wrestling with is the level of shame that is imposed on us for being fully human, right? And 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 really mistrusting God's ability to make good of it all. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, and and, yeah. and and that because that that shame can be such an oppressive force when it gets internalized, and I I've had to do a lot yeah. of my own work with that, and mm-hmm. and you know, in listening to you and the uh, the way you talk about, it, I've just found so much helpful, and then and kind of how you how uh, there's a juxtaposition with with thriving, you know, and yeah. you know, and, and you know, we're not we're not seeking a living wage, we're th- seeking a thriving wage. We're not helping people yeah. survive, we're helping people thrive. So, can can you share a little bit about uh, like your work around shifting that and 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 how that metamorphosis takes place? Yeah, I love that. I love the kind of the thriving language. You know, in the last 15, 20 years, has been such a conversation around a living wage and making sure people have capacity to live. And I'm like, I mean, yeah, but what happens if we actually create conditions for people to thrive and thrive? Like, what do you mean by thriving? Well, I mean that there's nothing missing, nothing broken, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. When I was making a living wage, yeah, the roof was over my head and we were eating the peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I couldn't put any money away for a rainy day when my car broke down. That's not thriving, mm-hmm. right? And so when we talk about the social, economic, and emotional thriving of not just Black single mothers, but of all people, we are talking about a notion of nothing missing, nothing broken, nothing or no one or no policy or no social idea getting in the way of people experiencing the fullness of what God has called Mm -hmm. us to experience. And that is the mantra by which I do our work. That is the mantra through which and the lens through which I partner with people, through, whether it's funders or donors, uh, because you have to see the fullness of folks and humanity mm. in order to really equip and give people space and trust people know what it is that they need for their own lives, mm-hmm. right? And I think it's, it is the lack, it is our inability to understand abundance. And how kingdom is about abundance and not mm. scarcity right. that makes us think that we have the right to impose um, our own mm. theological or political or whatever lenses on folks. And 
the scripture, when we're talking about Jesus and the gospels, that's just not true. So hmm. we all about thriving over here, baby. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And as you've done the work, you've placed this cohort model really at the center of the work. Can you talk about that? What, how you chose that? What difference it's made? Yeah. You know, I mean, obviously the cohort model really was out of response of where we were when we started this work in the, in the pandemic, we didn't go anywhere. And so Zoom became my best friend. But what I think the cohort model does is that it centers a shared space for moms, um, a place that they can always return to every week at six o'clock on, you know, t- mm-hmm. on a Tuesday. Mm-hmm. But the thing, the most beautiful thing that comes out of the cohort model, which is why we continue to use it, is over and over again, we hear these moms say, this is the first time that I've been in the kind of space where I could be honest Mm-hmm. about my experiences wow. as a single mom and be seen, heard, not judged by it and supported. Yeah. Wow. It's different when we do an event. We did an event in Atlanta, you know, 25 moms came out, we had sponsors and it was great. And the Dean of the chapel at Spelman came and did a session. It was a really, really fantastic thing. And I think women were moved and like made deep connections, but then they went off home. Mm. You know, back into their regular lives. And there's something to be said about how that is a different experience than the women who have formulated this bond, even if it's just over six weeks, right? About the kind of shared intimacies that happen three hours a week when we do our cohorts. And so that's really the model. And, and I think the current project is we're really thinking about how do we continue to build capacity to expand that? Because I personally like the intimacy of it and being able to run it one at a time. Um, but you know, we're like 4.2 million single moms in the, <laughs> in the country. I'm like, right. I'm like <laughs> so we need to, we need to be thinking about how do we build capacity to have more of these cohorts. So yeah. what is that God-sized dream for the current project? When you close your eyes oh, nice. and you're thinking, <laughs> okay, God, if you just moved all the mountains uh, mm. and the current project is, is what, can you paint that picture for us? Man, the God-sized dream is that we have these current project living communities mm. where the current project has the kind of capital where we buy single family, uh, like apartment buildings or brownstone buildings, you know, four or five families at a time where moms are able to come into our programs. We alleviate their cost of living, their childcare expenses, all those types of different things for a finite amount of time, 24 months, 36 months, while they finish a leg of a, of a degree or mm-hmm. man, while they start a small business and get that off the ground, right? And, being, and so I would love to have those types of living communities all around the country mm-hmm. um, because, you know, I think cost of living, when we piddle down through all of the data, cost of living is really what gets in people's way from, from thriving, right? I think that's one part. The other big God-sized dream is I would love for the current project to become the kind of like data house for Black single moms. There is a lot of, and the reason we folk, we're thinking about focusing on data is that there's a lot of information and data about really poor, under the poverty line uh, families. There's not a lot of information, enough information around the Black single mothers we focus on, which are these Midler moms, M-I-D-D-L-E-R, 
And these are moms who are out earning social safety net, but under earning to economically mm. thrive. These are moms who have degrees. These are moms who are working. These mm. are moms who, you know, have some kind of lived experience, but they are still kind of stuck in this middle place, very much like I was when I moved to New York. Right. I was in this weird middle place and I would love for the current project to become their premier voice and data house for uh, researching and galvanizing information about this particular demographic for the purpose of influencing two different places, the church and the and the political world. Right. Mm. To really use that information to form and inform program and policies that really sustain thriving. If I can knock those two things out, you know, before Jesus returns. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I, I sincerely believe there's people uh, listening to us right now that the Lord is moving in their hearts to help make those dreams a reality. And I've been asking our, our in these podcasts as someone who struggled for 15 years with it, in a ministry among the marginalized, I'm trying to figure out how to fund this with persons who do not have a lot of discretionary uh, income. And so can you share a little bit about uh, how you, how this gets financed, how you pay for it, and and uh, what it's going to take to for to live into those God sized dreams. Yeah. Your guess is as good as mine, Owen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, look, I think um, for this particular audience, one of the reoccurring themes that come up in conversations um, in faith spaces is the the kind of unimaginable level of wealth that lives within the big C church. Mm-hmm. And when I say wealth, I don't even just mean liquid cash. I mean, access to buildings, access to art spaces, access to community centers that most, in, in many communities, lay, lie vacant mm-hmm. five days a week, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that there is such a, a kind of undercurrent of conversation about how does the Big C Church begin to reimagine its resources to fund the work that we're doing, mm. right? I, and let me be, if I can just be like my candid, witty self, I think that we get a kick out of that like idea that there will always be poor among us. Mm-hmm. And we're like, oh, we always have to have something to fund and work for, for the goodness of the world. And I'm like, if we would just like shift our theology a little bit and shift where we put our like money and energy and resources, I mean, it doesn't always have to be poor in the world, right? Mm. I remember <laughs> I was working for a, a, a faith-based institution. I won't say which one I've worked for many. So if you think you can figure it out, good for you. But I, <laughs> I remember working for one um and they ran like a food pantry or, or something like that. And I remember sitting in this like committee meeting and they were really excited that they were able to say that they served more people at the food pantry this year than they did last year. Mm. And they were like, yeah, you know, that means we're, you know, I'm able to meet more people's needs. And I'm sitting there like, guys, that's not the win. You think it's our goal here, right? <laughs> And I get it, right? Because again, mm. it's that notion that we are called to like help the poor and like to, to bring in, and we are. Let's mm. be clear that we are. But the measurement for divine uh, interruption of poverty and marginalization is not to say that we were able to help more people. It's actually to say, you know what? Temp- we had 10% less people come to this mm. the pantry because they now can afford to buy their own food. 
Yeah. That is the win. That's right. the one where I'm like, what? You know, right? They're and thriving. So, <laughs> they're thriving. <laughs> so I say all that to say, Owen, for this particular audience is really thinking about how do we reimagine what it is that we already have at our disposal, mm -hmm. right? And who are the people that you know who are interested in, in giving into work that is transforming the world and does not require the kind of like worldly check it, like, you know, the kind of things that we force people to run, jump through all these hoops, right? To get funding or space to do their work um, and then want to complain when there aren't enough, you know, chefs in the kitchen. So I think that's it. I think that we just need to reimagine and let go of our theological ideas that we are here to and perpetually be indebted to um, saving the world when I think we actually have the capacity to save the world right now. We don't have to wait until the return. Mm. We can just do it. May it be so. May it be so. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. They're, they're going to be like, what the hell? Who does she think she is? Like, <laughs> I'm just like, you like, do it. Come on. <laughs> right, right on a check right now. He could just knock it all out. <laughs> Amen. That, indeed, we are not living up to our capacity of what the, the Lord is calling us to and what the Lord ha no. the Lord is, has, is making available in the abundance. Yeah. And, and if we had more people thinking like you're thinking, then the, the, the needs of the world would be uh, so small. Just so yeah. small. I mean, look, the, the real I, suffering I think... that's in, in, that we have in the world hmm. would, would be well, so look. much more diminished. I think that if we are willing to relinquish our control over what people do with God's resources, because hmm. it all belongs to God anyway, but we want to tell people, poor people, impoverished people, marginalized people, what to do with God is what God has given them. We want to police it. And I'm using that, that language uh, in, on purpose. We want to police and control what people do and we, so that we can have some kind of like hierarchy. And we're the ones that's imparting the goodness into the world. Well, listen, we have a trust that people, just like we do at the current project, we trust that black single mothers know what it is that they need. And it is our job to get it to them mm -hmm. and trust that whatever knowledge they need to like shepherd that, that we can give it to them and take them on. Go, go with God. And we are here when you <laughs> are back. I mean, I think that's the method for this entire work. Like you're making investments into the lives of people who have vision and you are just like, come to our podcast and talk about this work. The rest of it is up to you. And that is really the model I think we, we need to lean into. Yeah. Really trusting that indeed the Holy Spirit is at work and that indeed human beings the people of God in the world um, mm -hmm. have capacity and imagination mm -hmm. for beautiful, powerful, impactful, generative work. And may it be so for sure. Well, we are asking all of our guests a final question. Um, what is a breath of fresh air in the church today that is nothing less than the gift of the spirit? <laughs> <sighs> I've been pondering this question all day. Mm. And I think it is our willingness to tell the real truth. The, our willingness to go against doctrine, denomination, <laughs> politics, 
uh, and tell the real truth. And this is really inspired and particularly by Gen X, uh, Gen Zers. Mm. This group that my daughter, she's 18, born in 2004, they have brought in a breath of fresh air into church. And I'm putting an asterisk there because as we know, a lot of them don't go to church, but they're yeah. still doing the hand. They're still the hands of feet of God. Right. Um, and it's been such a breath of fresh air for them to breathe life into how we do ministry, where we do ministry mm-hmm. and their boldness. Like they, they really don't care about offending people as long as the offense gets us to the greater good. And that's mm-hmm. such a breath of fresh air mm-hmm. to me because you know, they're not yet settled down with like student loan debts and mortgages. They don't have to really answer to nobody, you know, yet, you know, they're <laughs> like, <laughs> um, and, and they just see that there's opportunities to make a difference in the world. And so my, my, my answer to that, the breath of fresh air in the church right now, Gen Zers who are out here telling the truth about what uh, is possible in the world. Yeah. Truth right there. Yeah. Transparency, authenticity, um, holding up the mirror. The truth. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's live into that. Well, Alicia, you are a breath of fresh air. This has been so much fun. This has been so much fun. This was a blast. Thank y'all so much for having me. Thank you. Igniting Imagination is a production of the Leadership Ministry Team at Wesleyan Impact Partners with excellent editing support from Truthwork Media. Follow us on social media at Wesleyan Impact Partners. Visit our website at ignitingimagination.org and share our episodes with friends and colleagues. Our hope is that these conversations can spark imagination in your context. I'm Blair Thompson-White. On behalf of all of us at Wesleyan Impact Partners, thanks for listening.